Last time, we spoke about the naval battle of Empress Augusta Bay. Operation Cherry Blossom kicked off taking the Japanese by complete surprise. All of the diversionary actions had managed to confuse the Japanese into thinking the Shortland Islands were the real target. Admiral Wilkinson's flotilla managed to land 14,000 men and 6,200 tons of supplies at Cape Torikina. When the Japanese finally received news of the landings, they tossed massive air attacks and prepared a counter-landing force. The air attacks were not nearly enough to put a dent on the unloading process, however. Vice Admiral Omari set out to intercept the Americans, but he was caught off guard by Admiral Merrill's figure-eight maneuver that saw two Japanese warships sunk, many heavily damaged and hundreds of Japanese killed. The Japanese tried a second time to hit the Americans, but Admiral Halsey unleashed his carriers to quell the action. This episode is the counter-attack on Bougainville. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Greg Watson. But before we begin, I just want to remind you all, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and so much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there, I just released a podcast interview I did with Flashpoint History on the Doolittle Raid. Also, please check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel for more exclusive podcasts. Things were looking bad for the Japanese at the start of the Bungayville campaign. Many Japanese lay dead on the island from the futile attempts to counter the landings. In the depths of Empress Augusta Bay lay other bodies and warships. Rabal was being pulverized systematically. The Japanese needed to dislodge the enemy from the island, lest it become a, another Guadalcanal. General Turnage's marines had successfully made their landings, and now they would expand the perimeter. The naval battle of Empress Augusta Bay, combined with Admiral Sherman's carrier raids against Rabal's harbor, had delivered a crippling blow to the IGN's power in the region. Admiral Kuzaka's air force at Rabal had been reduced to 270 aircraft, including the last-minute 100 aircraft that were loaned from the IGN carriers. To make matters even worse, on November the 5th, Admiral Halsey received a new task group led by Rear Admiral Alfred Montgomery. Task Group 50.3 consisted of carriers Essex, Bunker Hill, light carrier Independence, and destroyers Edwards, Murray, McKee, Kidd, Chauncey, and Bullard. On November the 8th, the destroyers Stack, Sterrett, and Wilson were also given to this group, though they would be withdrawn by November the 14th. These new carriers were packing some heat. Essex carried 36 Hellcats, 36 Dauntless, and 19 Avengers. Bunker Hill, 24 Hellcats, 33 SBC-2 Helldivers, and 18 Avengers, plus 24 Corsairs that were running cat from Ondonga and Segi Point. Light Carrier Independence carried another 24 Hellcats and 9 Avengers, plus 12 Hellcats running cat from Ondonga and Segi Point as well. 
With all of that, Halsey had an additional 45 torpedo bombers, 69 dive bombers, and 120 fighters to continue putting the hurt on Rebel. The only catch for all of this was Halsey lacked an adequate destroyer screen to properly protect these superweapons. Thus, he would be unable to fully utilize them until a bit later on. Halsey was also reinforced with Rear Admiral Lawrence Dubois' Cruiser Division 13, consisting of the light cruisers Santa Fe, Birmingham, Mobile, Biloxi, and destroyers Harrison, John Rogers, McKee, and Murray. Admiral Merrill's exhausted task force was given some much-needed R&R beginning on November the 7th. Back over at the beachhead, General Vandegrift was so certain the operation was 100% successful, he handed the keys to the car over to Turnage, and he returned with Admiral Wilkinson to Guadalcanal. Of course, he was about to receive a promotion and would soon be on his way over to Washington. Turnage now sought to expand the beachhead further inland to give the Marines more defense in depth as it was expected the Japanese would launch major attacks to try and dislodge them. He shifted the 3rd Marines, whose units had suffered the most casualties thus far to the left sector of the beachhead. He then moved the more fresh 9th Marines to the right, where he believed it was the most likely area the Japanese would hit the hardest. Still meeting no real enemy resistance, these shuffling actions were accomplished by November the 4th. Simultaneously, many units also extended the perimeter. By the end of November the 3rd, the 2nd Raider Battalion extended their part of the perimeter 1,500 yards or so. The only real action anyone saw for a while was patrol skirmishes and some fighting over roadblocks. The 2nd Raiders were under the temporary command of Major Alan Shapley, who took responsibility for a few roadblocks. Companies rotated out of their positions every couple of days. The key roadblock positions were found along the Piva and Mission Trails. The 3rd Raiders were working out ways to lure out a small group of Japanese holding out on Torokino Island. On November the 3rd, the 3rd Defense Battalion and a 105mm battery of the 12th Marines fired upon the small island for over 15 minutes. The 3rd Raiders followed this up to storm the suspected Japanese position to find nothing but corpses. An outpost was established by M Company of the 9th Marines far to the left of the main perimeter, which was hoped to guard against surprise attacks coming over the La Ruma River. Turnage's patrols at this point became a daily chore for all units on Moongameville. These patrols would go on for 20 grueling months. The thick undergrowth and the lack of well-defined trails made it extremely easy for the Japanese to set up ambushes at their leisure. Thus, to combat this, the Marines had to turn to some very good boys, canine companies. The war dogs used their superior senses to hunt and track down the enemy during some patrols. During the early stages of the Bougainville campaign, the dogs were able to locate a number of small groups of Japanese. The Bougainville campaign, despite being a war zone, would not see as brutal fighting as places like, let's say, Peleliu. On Peleliu, many of the war dogs literally were driven mad, but on Bougainville, the dogs had a less intensive time. The patrol scouted as far north as Laruma and as far south as the Torquina River, finding no meaningful resistance. By the 5th of November, the perimeter was extended inland a further three miles. Now five battalions were manning a 10,000-yard front, with the bulk of the raider battalions located on Perret Island and at Cape Torquina in the reserves. Wilkinson's convoy would bring over another 3,548 troops of the 21st Marines and 5,080 tons of supplies on November the 6th. 
Because the beaches were already so cluttered up with supplies, and everything still lacked developed facilities, the incoming LSTs had to land their cargo on Pareto Island, which had some open beaches left. There was still no shore party to organize the unloading, and the supply jam would hit the smaller island, just like it was on Bougainville. Turnage now had nearly 20,000 men to man a pretty small beachhead. Now over on the other side, the Japanese were now under the belief no more than 5,000 Americans had landed on Bougainville. Are you getting those Guadalcanal vibes? Admiral Kuzaka still sought to send over the specially trained amphibious second mobile raiding unit of Major Miwa Mitsuhiro, who was a thousand men strong. He hoped to perform a counter landing north of the American beachhead. If the special unit could disrupt the Marines enough, perhaps the USA detachment could march overland to join up and together they could dislodge the Americans. On the 6th, the destroyers Amagiri, Uzuki, Minagi, and Fumizuki departed Rabaul carrying 475 of the special unit members, with 375 support troops. The small convoy was escorted by Admiral Osugi's destroyer squadron, consisting of the Urukaze, Kazugumo, Wakatsuki, Mikinami, Naganami, Onami, and Hayanami. Fortunately for them, the naval force managed to sneak right past a PT boat guard force of eight PT boats operating out of Purito Island. On November the 7th, at 4 a.m., the IGN destroyers doubled back and unloaded the troops onto 21 landing barges to make a run for the beach. The 8 PT boats operating patrols in the area had established a new base at Pareto Island, but not a single one discovered the Japanese landing force. Sailors aboard one of the PT boats reported seeing a strange craft, which might have been one of the barges, and consequently, a PT boat did check out the report. Yet before it arrived, the Japanese were already landed ashore and about to charge into the left flank of the perimeter. The landing craft was seen by a marine anti-tank platoon along the beach, but they did not fire upon it, thinking it to be American. Thus, in the end, the amphibious assault was a complete surprise to the Americans. The small Japanese force had landed on the beaches between Laruma and the Koromakina rivers. Not only were the Americans surprised, the Japanese were also surprised to find out the American perimeter extended further west than they expected. As a result, they would be unable to assemble into a unitary force before the firefight broke out. The Japanese had landed so close to the Marine beachhead, the 5th Company 54th Regiment were cut off from the Laruma outpost at 6 a.m., and they were forced to attack the left flank of the perimeter. The Japanese raiders had come ashore scattered along two miles of beach on either side of the Laruma River. Major Miwa Matsuhiro gathered the men he could, and he sought to take advantage of the element of surprise that they held. At 6.30 a.m., a skirmish broke out against Company K's 3rd Platoon. The platoon had been out patrolling inland towards the Laruma River right at the same time as the landing. The platoon ran right into the force, killing some of the Japanese before the platoon leader disengaged, realizing the size of the enemy force. He took his men into the swamps going eastward, and it would take him a 30-hour, grueling adventure to get out. Meanwhile, Company K of the 9th Marines were attacked by Company 5 of the 54th Regiment in a 5-hour long firefight. The guns of the 12th Marines and 90mm anti-aircraft weapons of the 3rd Defense Battalion managed to fire upon the invaders, who were forced to pull back to some captured voxels. Company K then launched a counterattack. They found the Japanese dug in 150 yards west of the Ruma River. Fierce fighting broke out, but Company K could not dislodge them. 
At 1.15 p.m., Companies B and C of the 1st Battalion 3rd Marines came in to relieve the exhausted defenders, and they launched an attack through Company K's position. Major John Brady's men attacked the Japanese in the entrenchments. Company C hit the right flank as B Company hit the left. Both ran into heavy machine gun fire. The men requested tank support, and soon the tanks, 37mm, were firing upon the Japanese at point-blank range, causing tremendous casualties. Meanwhile, the 1st Battalion of the 21st Marines, led by Lieutenant Colonel Ernest Fry, had just landed at Parada Island and they were given orders to spearhead a new assault upon the Japanese. Two LCPRs were sent to evacuate the Laruma outpost. And by the nighttime, the Marines and Japanese were having shouting matches as they fired upon another. The Japanese would yell out, Molin, you die! And the Marines made earthly references to Premier Tojo's diet. Marine Captain Gordon Warner was fluent in Japanese, so he quickly replied to the Japanese, and apparently he even managed to yell believable orders prompting a bayonet charge. He would receive the Navy Cross for destroying machine gun nests with a helmet full of hand grenades, but he did lose a leg in the battle. Sergeant Hubert Thomas would give his life near the Koromakina. His platoon was forced prone by machine gun fire, and Thomas threw a grenade to silence the weapon. The grenade rebounded from the jungle vines, and the young West Virginian smothered it with his body. He posthumously was awarded the Medal of Honor. The attack would come to a halt to allow a strong bombardment to hit the Japanese positions provided by the 12th Marines. The following morning saw another bombardment by five batteries of the 12th Marines before Lieutenant Colonel Fry led two companies through the 3rd Marines' position to attack. They crashed into a concentrated area around 300 yards wide and 600 deep. Light tanks supported the attack. However, they would only find slight resistance alongside over 250 dead Japanese. Major Miwa had pulled the men out, heading further inland to try and join up with Major General Iwase Shun's soon-to-be counteroffensive. On November the 9th, Allied dive bombers hit the area to clear out any possible Japanese infiltrators. Patrols in the area would find even more Japanese dead and the Marines would ultimately claim over 377 dead Japanese. Over on the Japanese side, the USA detachment were marching towards Mission and the Numa Numa Trails. These two positions would allow them to thwart a lot of possible American advances, which they still believed were smaller than they actually were. Back on November the 5th, E Company of the 2nd Raiders had skirmished with some Japanese at the Piva Trail roadblock. The actions alerted Colonel Edward Craig, and he ordered most of the raiders to head north to support the position. On November the 7th, Colonel Hamanoe Toshiaki led the 1st Battalion to hit part of the roadblock managed by H Company. This would be occurring simultaneously with the amphibious assault on the Koromakina. H Company, supported by some motors from the 9th Marines, were able to beat off the attack, giving Major Alan Shapley's G Company enough time to come up and reinforce the position. By the afternoon, the raiders were forcing the Japanese to retreat over to Piva Village, where they had to dig in. Hamanoe's men then began to use their new position to fire motors and artillery into the marine perimeter. The next day, General Iwasa ordered two battalions to attack the position, supported by a motor barrage. However, the swampland on either side of the trail prevented proper flanking maneuvers, so the Japanese were forced into a frontal assault. Companies E and F easily repelled the attack, receiving aid from the 3rd Raiders. 
The Americans formed a horseshoe defensive formation, connecting the roadblock to the main perimeter. The new position was reinforced with motors from the 9th Marines and some light tanks of the 3rd Tank Battalion. The Japanese suffered heavy casualties for their efforts. E&F Company then attempted flanking maneuvers through the treacherous swamps and did manage to hit the Japanese. The heavy fighting eventually resulted in a stalemate. Both sides pulled back. The Marines had 8 deaths and 27 wounded, while it was estimated the Japanese had 125 deaths. On November the 9th, Major General Roy Geiger arrived at Bougainville to take command of the 1st Marine Amphibious Corps. Turnage now turned his attention to clearing the Piva Trail, as it could threaten the building of the planned airstrips. He ordered the 2nd Battalion, 9th Marines, led by Lieutenant Colonel Robert Cushman, into a support position and two Raider battalions to clear the trail. Beginning at 7.30 a.m. on the 9th, artillery of the 12th Marines began to pound the area as the Raiders advanced forward through the narrow trail between the two swamps. Some Japanese had survived the artillery bombardment and began moving 25 yards within the Marines' position. The Raiders ran directly into them beginning a firefight. The action saw a series of thrusts and counter-thrusts at point-blank range. The Japanese were trying to break through the Marine defenses just as the Raiders were coming up to smash them. It was some fierce fighting, and Private First Class Henry Girk, the 3rd Raiders, was manning one of a two-man foxhole in the forefront that met the attack. To protect his partner, Private First Class Donald Props, firing a bar, Girk pushed Prost aside and tossed himself over a grenade that was thrown into their foxhole. Girk was killed, saving his friend. Props would receive a Silver Star Medal, and Girk posthumously received the Medal of Honor. As the brawl raged on, Colonel Craig sent in the reserves to check a flanking maneuver right of the roadblock. The Marines gradually overcame Iwase's men, causing them to pull back to Pira Village. By mid-afternoon, the Marines reached the junction of the Piva and Numanuma trails and would dig in for the night. The Marines suffered 12 deaths and 30 wounded, while patrols would count over 140 dead Japanese bodies. If accurate, this meant the Japanese had already suffered 500 casualties during this four-day combined counteroffensive. To strengthen their new position, bombers from Munda began bombing the 50-yard area on either side of the Piva Trail going as far north as Piva Village. Afterwards, the 1st and 2nd Battalions of the 9th Marines settled into new defensive positions along the Numa Numa Trail and began tossing patrols forward. Meanwhile, Turnage and Geiger were seeing the arrival of the 1st Echelon of General Beitler's 37th Division. Wilkinson's transports landed the 148th Regiment, 5,715 troops, and 3,160 tons of supplies. In response, Kazaka tossed 15 Kates and 60 Zeros to try and hit the transports during the afternoon. They managed to land a hit on the transport fuller, killing five men and wounding 20. But ultimately, it did not much else. The beach situation had improved a little bit, so the 129th and 145th regiments, some 10,277 men, were beginning to land alongside 8,500 tons of supplies between November the 11th and the 12th. And I'm sure by hearing all of these numbers for the landings, you're already starting to realize how dramatically things have shifted for the Allies in the Pacific. There was simply no way for Japan to challenge such landings at this point. The Americans were simply outproducing them in every imaginable way. Admiral Halsey now sought to smash Rabaul once again on the 11th. He planned to launch a three-pronged air raid. 
Sherman's and Montgomery's carriers from the south and General Kenny's bombers from New Guinea would be tasked with hitting Rabaul. Yet terrible weather hit New Guinea, as it typically does, preventing Kenny's aircraft from participating in the end. Thus, the carriers would go it alone. Sherman launched his aircraft in the vicinity of Green Island, 225 miles from Rabaul. Sherman's aircraft ran into 68 zeros over the harbor. The bombers tried to hit the already damaged heavy cruisers Chokai and Maya, but missed. However, within the inner harbor was the light cruiser Agano, and a single torpedo landed a critical hit, blowing off a large portion of her stern, flooding her engine room. Montgomery launched his aircraft 160 miles southeast of Rabaul. Essex and Bunker Hill tossed 80 aircraft each. Independence tossed 25, and 24 additional Corsairs came to provide cap. Lieutenant Commander James Voss led 33 Curtis SBC-2 Helldivers, the new dive bomber that was replacing the Dauntless throughout the fleet. The Naganami was hit by a torpedo and forced to be towed into the harbor. The Suzunami was hit by a dive bomb attack and would sink near the entrance to Rabaul's harbor. Strafing from the fighters and bombers inflicted additional damage against the light cruiser Yubari and destroyers Urakaze and Umekaze. Six Zeros were also shot down. While Sherman's pilots had managed to withdraw from the raid using rain squalls, Montgomery's group would not be so lucky. Admiral Kuzaka responded to the raids by launching one of the largest anti-carrier strikes of the war. The wave consisted of 11 Betty bombers, 27 Val dive bombers, 14 Kate torpedo bombers, and 67 Zeros. Despite radar alerts of the incoming airstrike, Montgomery decided to get his aircraft aloft and perhaps carry out another strike. Montgomery was confident in his cap, and his task force was operating a new carrier formation. The carriers were grouped together rather than separated, forming a triangle in a 2,000-yard circle with nine destroyers spaced around evenly at around 4,000 yards. They would be utilizing new anti-aircraft fuses as well. The Japanese pounced on the task force in a battle that would last 45 minutes. The cap engaged the Zeros while the Japanese bombers tried to hit the carriers. Bunker Hill suffered five near misses, one punctured the hull of the Essex in a number of places. Independence received four near misses. It was minor damage, and it came at the cost of two Zeros, 14 Kates, and 24 Vals. Absolutely terrible losses for the Japanese. The action did, however, stop Montgomery from launching a secondary strike. In just a week, Kuzaka had lost 43 zeros out of 82, 38 vowels out of 45, 34 kates out of 40, 6 D4Y Suzy Comets out of 6, and 86 pilots out of 192. Such losses were absolutely crushing. Admiral Koga would be forced into a terrible situation later during the invasion of the Gilberts due to a shortage of aircraft. Koga was forced to pull out his surviving carrier planes from Rabaul and replace them with inferior planes and pilots from the Marshals. But that's it for Bougainville as we are now traveling back to the China Theater. At dusk on November the 2nd, General Yokoyama began his offensive into the Chengdu area. His 39th Division advanced southwest of Yidu, followed by the 13th Division heading to Nanmu. The 3rd Division with the Sasuke Detachment headed for Wangjiajiangtian, and the 68th and 116th Divisions plus the Tota Detachment attacked Angxiang. 
After routing some smaller forces out of the way, the 13th and 3rd Divisions attacked the 79th Army along the Nanmu Wangjiangjiangjian line on November the 5th, while the 116th and 68th Divisions hit the 44th Army near Anxiang. Commander of the 10th Army Group, Lieutenant General Wang Jingzhou, assembled the 66th Army at Niejiaojujian and ordered Major General Wang Jibeng to resist the enemy at all costs. The Chinese were absolutely crushed by the two Japanese divisions and they were forced to retreat towards Moshi with the Japanese in hot pursuit. Meanwhile, the 116th and 68th Divisions hit both flanks of Anxiang, breaking General Wang Jiaxu's line held by the 29th Army. Jiaxu had to order a withdrawal, and from that point, the 116th pursued the 44th Army towards Jinxu, where they annihilated a smaller part of the unit. To the north on November the 9th, the Miyawaki Detachment was advancing to Nanmu and the Sasaki Detachment to Xinguangjian, while the 3rd and 13th Divisions were catching up to the 79th Army in the Moshi area. The 13th Division attacked Moshi while the 3rd Division attacked Ximin. During the battle, the 79th Army was effectively destroyed as a fighting force. After this, Yokoyama ordered the 3rd Division and Sasaki Detachment to attack Ximin, where the 73rd Army was defending. Yokoyama also ordered the 116th Division to attack Chongyang, and for the 68th Division to advance by river towards Hanzhou. This was all done in preparation for the upcoming attacks against Chengdu, being defended by Major General Wang Yaowu's 74th and 100th Armies. On November the 14th, the Japanese offensive hit Ximen, seeing the defeat of the 73rd Army in just two days. On the 19th, the second phase of the offensive began, with the 3rd Division joining up with the 116th Division to attack Chongyang. Simultaneously, the 13th Division and Sasaki Detachment began an occupation of Tsuri. On the 21st, the assault on Chongyang began, seeing the 51st and 58th Divisions of the 74th Army completely annihilated. From Chongyang, the Japanese forces immediately began an advance towards Chengdu. The 13th Division met tough resistance from the remnants of the 29th Army Group, led by Wang Zhuangxu. The Chinese were able to utilize the mountainous terrain to their benefit, hitting the Japanese with some artillery. The 68th Division defeated the 100th Army at Hanzhou and then annihilated its remaining survivors around Jishanpujian. This left only Major General Yu Changwan's 57th Division defending Chengdu. Unbeknownst to Yokoyama, General Shi Yue had dispatched some reinforcements led by Generals Li Yutang and Ojen to try and halt the Japanese offensive. By November the 23rd, Yokoyama's assault on Chengdu began. The 3rd, 68th, and 116th Divisions surrounded the city. Two days later, over 30,000 Japanese began attacking Yu Changwan's brave 8,300 defenders. The defenders were hit with artillery and aerial bombardment. With each attack, the Chinese were pushed back little by little until they only held 300 meters around their main command post. Yu Changwang's only hope was to hold out until the reinforcements arrived to try and make a breakthrough. But by December the 1st, the 3rd and 68th Divisions performed a pincer attack, defeating them. On December the 2nd, Yu Changwang was forced to evacuate the city. Chengdu fell on the 3rd of December, and Yokoyama celebrated the success by ordering chemical and biological units to attack the cities in the region. During Yokoyama's offensive, whenever the Japanese found too much resistance, they had Unit 516 deploy chemical weapons in liquid or gas forms, including mustard gas, lewisite, 
cyanatic acid gas, and phosgene. Some of the weaponry was still in experimental stages. Artillery was used to launch shells filled with the gas into some cities, inflicting massive civilian casualties. Most of the artillery shells contained mustard gas and lewisite. The effect of the chemical weapons caused massive panic to both humans and livestock. It's alleged bubonic plague was also deployed and spread within a 36-kilometer radius of Chengdu city. It is estimated 300,000 civilians would be killed in Chengdu alone, alongside 50,000 soldiers. The Japanese began to withdraw on December the 9th, but by this time, Wujian launched a counteroffensive and managed to reclaim the city. By December the 24th, the 11th Army returned to their original positions, but for the Japanese, it was another hit-and-run offensive, aimed to cause massive death. The Japanese suffered 1,274 deaths and 2,977 wounded, though these are their claims, and most likely there was a lot more. The Chinese estimated 14,000 had died, with 10,000 being captured. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there, I'm releasing a podcast interview I did with Flashpoint History on the Doolittle Raid. Also, please check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel for more exclusive podcasts. The Japanese counteroffensive against the Marine beachhead on Bungeville was not going according to plan. Admiral Halsey gave Rabaul another crushing air raid, and now the Japanese air power in the Pacific was dwindling dangerously. Within China, the horror of the Japanese Empire and their chemical and biological units continued to rage on.